right, tonight we're continuing our study on Christ in the Old Testament. Just to briefly describe the progression of our study, we've broken, it's a giant study, because Christ is found throughout the Old Testament. We've broken it into three segments. Uh, We studied already uh, Christ in the Old Testament prophecies, and we studied his personal appearances in the Old Testament in what uh, theologians have coined as Christophanies or personal appearances of Christ. And now we're engaged in a study of the, the symbolic connections between various Old Testament things and the uh, fulfillment that would be found as they're pointing forward symbolically to the person and work of Christ. So we're studying what uh, the New Testament describes as types and shadows of Christ. Types being prophetic symbols showing some specific aspect or highlighting a specific aspect of the person or work of Christ. None of these symbols that we're looking at tell us everything that we need to understand about Christ, but each one tells us something super important about him. And then shadows is a word that simply emphasizes using imagery that these are all pointing forward, that they're, they're, the fullness of the meaning of these things in the Old Testament is not to be found in the Old Testament, but is to ultimately be found in the fulfillment of the one who is coming, who is Christ. Now, uh, in looking at types and shadows, we've now broken that study into seven uh, subsections, and we're just engaged in the first one, which is Christ in Old Testament things, and this is part three of that study. Uh, Hopefully, we will, we've We've looked at three of them for each of the first two parts. Hopefully we'll uh, cover three more for tonight. The first one is found in Exodus 16. It's one of the most well-known ones. It's, um, it's a symbolic type and shadow of Christ that Christ himself in the New Testament identified with himself and connected to himself. And I'm going to try to uh, develop some, some more of the details connected to that. I think most everybody is familiar with this one, but uh, may not be familiar with the, the, the layering of the details in the connection. So we'll read the first four verses of chapter 16. This is uh, the wilderness. We're at the beginning, the early stage of the wilderness journey of the children of Israel through the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Elam, And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And then it goes on there to provide some additional details. All right, so... This is the miracle, and it was not a single day miracle, although there was, of course, a first day of the miracle, the very first time that the Lord 
um, intervened in the natural course of history and the natural course of what we consider to be natural law, and he uh, super or he superseded that in a sense in that he caused food bread to rain from heaven upon the camp of his people to provide food for them and then continued to do so for the next 40 years consistently, providing a sufficient diet for his people for the entire duration of their wilderness journey. Now, what is the symbolism? Before we get into the layering that I'm about to share with you, the symbolism points, as I said, in each one of these cases to some specific aspect of the person of Christ or the work of Christ. And in this case, the focus is on Christ as the exclusive source of heavenly life. Christ as the exclusive source of heavenly, heavenly life. The idea is that God provided bread from heaven as a life-sustaining provision in the desert in a very practical and tangible sense that met the needs of the people's physical bodies. And he is pointing forward not to Christ being capable of providing for the physical needs of his people, though Christ did that in at least two miracles that he did in the New Testament gospel accounts, uh, specifically the the feeding of the 5,000, later the feeding of the 4,000. But what this is pointing to is using the provision for physical, of physical bread for physical needs as a, as a symbol of a provision of, of God's eternal life, a source of life coming from heaven in order to meet the true spiritual need of his people. Now, uh, what we want to do is we want to then turn from this a little bit deeper into the chapter. We're still in chapter 16. And look down, starting in verse 31, uh, all of the material in between is important, but just for the sake of our study, uh, look down at verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer, that's just a a specific amount of it, a particular uh, uh, size of container. Let an an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan, meaning it continued to rain consistently from heaven upon their camp until they reached the boundary line of the promised land. And as they did, the Lord caused the provision of manna to cease in order to drive them across, so to speak, the river Jordan, enter the promised land, and then begin to consume the food of the promised land. And then one last detail in verse 36, an omer is the 10th part of an ephah. Just in case you were wondering how much an omer is, uh, there's a clarification. It's a 10th of an ephah, of course. So um, what's interesting in terms of this final section in Exodus 16, before we go over to the New Testament and see the connections, 
is this detail that's added about the manna, which is the Lord wants the manna to also not just be a day-by-day provision for the practical and physical needs of the people for food. He wants it to be an enduring testimony to the people of his saving and providing work for them. And so he has Moses give instructions to Aaron to take a specific amount of it to put it in a jar. Now understand that the jars of the ancient world are not like, were not like the jars of today. Um, Kind of fallen out of favor. Some people still do this. Uh, But how many of you have actually um, what we call canning food for yourself? How many of you have, have taken jars, like mason jars, and then put some kind of food that you want to preserve for a future time and then sealed it with those rubber seals that are in the lids of the mason jars? Some of you have done that before. That's not the kind of jar we're dealing with here. We're talking about an earthen jar that had no seal on it whatsoever. So a jar was to be filled, an earthen jar was to be filled with manna, and we find out later that that jar was to be placed by the Lord's instructions before the testimony. And literally what was to be done with it was in the special item of furniture, which will, when we eventually get to the structures part of our study, that's, uh, that's separate from our study of Christ and the Old Testament things. And we're going to look at details of the tabernacle and the temple. But some of these, understand, are, are uh, kind of, there's an overlap. And here there's an overlap between Christ in Old Testament things and Christ in the structures of the Old Testament. So in the tabernacle in the temple, there was one item of furniture in God's designated house. And that item of furniture in the innermost room was, as we're familiar, the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember the the basic construction of the Ark of the Covenant? It was simply a box that was to be built. It was a special box. It served a special purpose. It was to be made out of a specific kind of wood. It was to be made with specific dimensions. And then it was to be covered with gold. And then there was a special lid that was to be constructed that was to be placed on the top of the box. And all of that then had added to it on either side representations of heavenly beings known as cherubim, which we focused on in our last study. So within the box, there's an empty space in the, in the Ark of the Covenant directly underneath the lid, which, function, which functioned as a seat. And the functioning of the seat tells us that the whole Ark of the Covenant was essentially a symbol of the throne of God. So what's interesting about that space underneath the lid is God is symbolizing things, whatever is going to be in that space, whatever is going to be in that box, God is symbolizing things that he wants directly associated with his throne because the Ark of the Covenant is an earthly representation in symbol of the throne of God in heaven. So there were three things placed within the box. The Two of the three things we're going to be studying tonight. Manna is one of them, and uh, Aaron's staff, which we'll we'll focus on if we have time as our last one tonight. The third one is the two tablets 
of the law where the Lord with his own finger wrote the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of the law. Each one of those three things has a special and specific God-appointed relationship to the throne of God in heaven. So what's interesting to me is that the manna is related to the throne of God and God wanted a jar of it placed in the box. Again, not with a vacuum seal. Why do we vacuum seal food when we do vacuum seal it? To preserve it, to keep it from rotting, decaying. If you don't, if you, if you don't vacuum seal food, eventually, just because we live in a fallen world that's subject to those kinds of, of laws and the progression toward decay, uh, that food will decay. And so God had a jar, an earthen jar filled with manna placed inside the box, which was a representation of the throne of God. And how long did it live there, that jar of manna? For the rest of Israel's history until eventually the Ark of the Covenant went away. Eventually, as God was finished, was symbolizing himself through special uh, appointed structures, eventually the Ark of the Covenant went away. But for as long as the Ark of the Covenant was part of the life of Israel and the way that God revealed himself, made himself known to Israel, that jar of manna, the same jar of manna, it wasn't like, uh, for instance, um, in the tabernacle and in the temple, one of the services that the Levitical priests were to do, and we'll, we'll, again, develop this more fully when we eventually get to the structures, but one of the things that the Levitical priests were to do is there was a table of showbread. You remember hearing about this, right? A table in the front room of God's house, what we would consider to be God's dining room, where the food was eaten. And so um, this showbread was to be fresh baked and laid on display on the table of showbread, one loaf per each one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But that bread was on a rotation basis. So it was baked, it was placed there, and when, when the day was done, that bread was taken off of the table and distributed among the Levitical priests to eat that bread. It was not remaining there. The manna is exceptional. It's not like the showbread in that sense. This same jar of manna at the very first or beginning stage of the manna miracle, the 40-year-long manna miracle, the Lord had Aaron on day one of the bread that rained from heaven gather some of it, an omer full, put it in a jar, put it in the Ark of the Covenant without a vacuum seal, and it lasted for all the generations of Israel without ever decaying, degrading, rotting, or in any sense being less than it was on that very first day. So what would that possibly indicate to us? Well, obviously the Lord had to supernaturally intervene to keep that bread fresh. But what is that an indication of? It's what we call now in a new covenant fullness of understanding sense, we call that eternal life. You know, there's going to be a day when we enter into the fullness of what we now possess by faith of eternal life. And when we receive our resurrected bodies, when the Lord returns in the second coming, we'll enter into the fullness of eternal life. 
And our lives from that day forward will never diminish, never decay, never in any sense be less than what they are at their highest and most pristine expression the very first day that we receive that resurrected body. So that for all of eternity, we will be incorruptible. So the manna, which is representing the transfer from God to his people of eternal life, is in itself, even during its time on earth, during history, it's an incorruptible bread, a bread that will not decay. All right, so now let's head over with that understanding to the New Testament connection, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, where Jesus himself draws a connection between himself and the manna. And I'm going to I'm going to go through this material fairly quickly and um, I'm going to draw connections between Jesus and the manna and then I'm going to draw connection between Jesus and emphasizing through the symbolism of manna that he himself is the exclusive source of eternal life in the same sense that God was the exclusive source of manna. For instance, there were no this should be obvious. There were no stores on the face of the earth where you could go in and replenish your supply of manna. Manna was only provided by the Lord miraculously, directly from heaven. There was no way the children of Israel could bake it on their own. There was no recipe for it. There was no way to duplicate it. It could only come directly from heaven. And in that sense, it perfectly displays eternal life. Now, uh, just before the section we're about to read, I'm going to start in um, John uh, chapter 6, verse 26. But I want you to just notice, looking a little bit up in the same chapter, the connections in teaching that Jesus is going to draw between himself and manna is immediately following a specific miracle that he did. And the miracle that he did is detailed in chapter 6 of John verse 1 through verse 14, and it is one of the two great uh, miraculous events where he multiplies food for his disciples and provides, in a sense, bread from heaven, fish along with that, obviously, and demonstrates that he is able to provide for all of their needs. So the teaching he's about to do is directly layered on top of the real-world miracle that he's just done. So let's pick up in verse 26, and I'll read from 26 through 35, and then I'm going to skip down and read 47 through 51. So first 26 through 35. I'm going to read the sections first, and then I'll just I'll quickly go back through and highlight a couple of details. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He's talking about the miraculous loaves that he provided. Do not work for the food that perishes. You know, like food that, that if, you, if, you, uh, if you let it just lay there will eventually degrade will eventually decay, will eventually rot. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, 
which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Uh, That's what we would describe as setting his seal of approval on him. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see you or see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, what's interesting about their questions is he's just done a miracle of miraculously providing food for 5,000 people for, from one small lunch. He's multiplied that. And here, just a short time afterwards, they're saying, well, what kind of sign can you possibly show us? And specifically, they reference the ancient, famous miracle in the Old Testament scriptures that we've just read about, which is the miracle of the manna. So they, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, rather than it, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now skipping down to verse 47. And again, all of the intervening verses are important, but just for the sake of our time, uh, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So he's, he's, he's connecting the, the imagery in the Old Testament of manna to the reality of his presence in the world, and he's connecting that to the transfer from him to his people of eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And by that, he's referencing that how we actually receive and consume this living bread, which is him, is through the sacrifice of his body on the cross and our apprehension of that by faith. All right, now, I said I would draw out some connections. I'm just going to go through a list of these. Um, If you're taking notes, just write down the the address and the the bare point, and you can go back and double-check it. But we just read all of this in the texts. So how Jesus makes the connection between his ministry and the manna of the Old Testament. In verse 27, he refers to the manna and to his ministry as the food that endures to eternal life. In verse 32, he, call, he describes his ministry as the true bread from heaven. In verse 33, he describes it as the bread of God. And then in verse 51, he describes it as the living bread that came down from heaven. Now, in terms of this exclusivity emphasis, and I'm seeing, uh, I'm defining the focus of the manna as 
as Christ is the exclusive source of eternal life, meaning it's not just that people need to be given eternal life by God, but how do they receive it? And the idea is biblically revealed there is only one source. There's only one way to receive this eternal life, this living bread, this bread that came down from heaven, and that's through the person of the Lord Jesus. So back in verse 27, um, Jesus emphasizes that it's the son of man who will give this living bread to you. Verse 33, it's he who came down from heaven that is qualified to transfer the bread to you. In verse 35, he emphasizes, I am the bread of life, uh, meaning I and no other is this bread of life. And then in verse 51, he, he describes himself as, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. All right, that's our first one. Let's, uh, let's just motor on and, and move to our second image. The first one being manna. The second one is we're going to look at water from the rock. This is also in the wilderness journey of Israel. We're back in Exodus one chapter later from where we started. We're now in chapter 17. Now, when you're, dry, when you're traveling through the wilderness, like Israel was for 40 years, in an unending journey through the wilderness, you know, there are two essentials that need to be provided because, again, there's no restaurants along the way. There's no grocery stores. There's no rest stops. Um, how can they possibly survive 40 years in the wilderness? What will they need? They'll need a supernatural provision of food, which God provided in the manna, and they will also need a supernatural provision of water, the other essential of life. And in a desert journey, you could make the case that water is even more essential than bread because you may survive a few days without bread, but you're in a desert environment. You're not going to survive very long without water. So here we are in Exodus 17, and I'll read just the first seven verses. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Now, a detail that's, that's given to us in other passages about the wilderness journey that we can incorporate into this one. How did they decide where to camp night by night in the wilderness? They're, they're journeying for 40 years. How did they decide? Was it like, did they have advanced scouts and then they came back? You know, how many of you were old enough? Most of you may not be, but do you remember the TV Western show, Wagon Train? Yeah. I watched it every week growing up. A wagon train effectively it was you know about the the uh, people that traveled from the east across you know the wilderness of the American West in order to settle new land that was discovered. But the way the wagon train functioned is they always had uh, advanced scouts like Rowdy Yates was I think was the name of one of the advanced scouts, and um, you know they went ahead of the wagon train. They reported back and said, "There's a good camping spot up ahead." How did Israel decide where to camp? The Lord led them, remember, through the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And wherever the pillar stopped, they stopped. And if the pillar stopped overnight, they stopped overnight. And if the pillar stayed for a week, they stayed for a week. And whenever the pillar lifted from the camp and moved, they broke camp and followed it. In, in other words, the Lord is leading them. So here we are. They've left one area, the wilderness of sin. They're still in the Sinai wilderness, which is the larger area. 
and we're talking about different, different regions within the Sinai wilderness, and a, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, so that in, indicates that the pillar of cloud and fire stopped at Rephidim so that they knew the signal was we're supposed to stop. But why in the world would the Lord stop at Rephidim? Because there was no water for the people to drink. The idea is the Lord is using the practical, real-world, physical needs of the people to drive home spiritual principles to their hearts in the events that are about to unfold. So verse 2, what should the people have done once they're camped at Rephidim? They know the Lord's led them there. They know they need something to drink, but there's no water for them to drink there. What should they have done? They should have gone to Moses and said, you know, we're, we're struggling with, some, with not having something to drink, but we're confident that the Lord has brought us this far and he hasn't brought us into the wilderness in order to kill us. So can we pray and ask the Lord to provide for us? But instead of that, this is what they do. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Basically, they're complaining again about their circumstance. Yeah. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? <laughs> Moses says, <laughs> trust me, as a leader in God's church, I, I experienced the temptation here. Basically, what Moses is doing is he's, he's um, blame shifting. He, he's saying, look, you're arguing, you're complaining about me, but I didn't tell us where to camp. I'm following the pillar of fire and cloud just like you are. It's the Lord who told us to camp here. So he's basically funneling them back to the Lord, which is fine as long as you're not blame shifting in the, in the funneling. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So it had reached kind of a fever pitch in their complaining and grumbling where he was concerned that they were actually going to act on their complaints in a deadly way. The Lord then said to Moses, pass on before the people, which means go ahead out in front of the camp. I want you to go a little, the camp is stopped. I want you to go a little further but this is all going to happen with, within the observation of the people. Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. He, the Lord wanted him to take the elders because they're now going, the elders are going to function as on-site eyewitnesses of the miracle that they're about to observe. So pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Now, uh, Horeb is a, a familiar Old Testament site. Um, it's, interestingly, the same basic location where God first called Moses to follow him into ministry by going back to Egypt and uh, delivering the children of Israel as the prophet of the Lord. Moses was in the vicinity of Horeb when the Lord first revealed himself to him in the, in the, uh, in the bush that burned without being consumed. And now they're back in that location, and what we're going to find later 
in the accounts in, in uh, Exodus is that Horeb is associated with what later comes to be identified more specifically as Mount Sinai. So they're just two different cultural names in those days for the same location. So what's significant about Mount Sinai from a biblical perspective? It's the mountain upon which the Lord's glory presence in the cloud of, 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 uh, of fire that settled on the mountaintop and then the Lord from that mountaintop called Moses to come up to the mountaintop and spend that 40 days and 40 nights in his immediate presence on the summit of Mount Sinai and from which the Lord then through Moses revealed the law of God and the blueprint for the construction of the tabernacle. So all of this is taking place in the same location, all right? So the Lord says to Moses at this point, um, behold, uh, take with you in your hand and go with you, uh, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the down and go, and behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Now, we're not told in this text which specific rock, but apparently Moses knew or would know when he, when he reached there that there was a very specific rock and it was going to serve some important revelatory purpose of the Lord and that the Lord would go and stand on it. Now, in the standing of the Lord on the rock, I personally believe that yes, the Lord himself did actually go and stand on the rock in what we studied in our earlier segment as a Christophany, a personal appearance of the Lord. Meaning I believe this was the Lord Jesus getting onto this rock and standing on the rock in front of Moses. But the question is, did Moses see the Lord standing on the rock or did any of the elders who were there as eyewitnesses see the Lord standing on the rock? There's no indications that they saw any physical form of the Lord. It's possible that he appeared in a physical format, but as far as we know, we just are taking by faith that the Lord is standing on this specific rock. And then he gives him an instruction. You shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so. So what did Moses actually do? When he reached the rock and the Lord got onto the rock, Moses took the staff, the same staff with which, which, with which he had struck the river Nile, which then turned to blood during the, the 10 plagues of judgment that God brought upon Egypt, which led to the release and the deliverance of the children of Israel. He's taking that same staff and striking the rock. So the reason why the Lord references, it's not like he's saying to Moses, okay, Moses, I just want you to take this stick in your hand that you use to lean on and it doesn't really matter which stick you use, just go ahead and strike the rock. He says, I want you to take the same stick, staff, I want you to take the same one that you struck the river Nile with. Why the reference to the river Nile? Because the striking of the river Nile was an imagery of judgment. And the striking of the rock at Horeb is an imagery of judgment. He's drawing a parallel between the two strikings so that in the mind and heart of Moses, he understands, I'm portraying a judgment. In the Nile River judgment, it was a judgment upon Egypt for their wickedness. In 
the striking of the rock at Horeb, it is a true judgment. It's a judgment of the Lord, but it is not a judgment upon Egypt any longer. Egypt's in the rearview mirror. This is all about what the Lord is doing with Israel. So what judgment is being portrayed here? This is the judgment that we're going to connect to the greatest judgment that's ever been poured out in all of human history by the Lord himself. And that's the judgment that was poured out in Christ on the cross. So this is an image of the cross. The Lord Jesus standing upon the rock at Horeb. Why this location among all the locations in the entire Sinai wilderness? Why did he have him stand on the rock at Horeb? Because this is the rock where the law was given to God's people. The idea is Jesus is standing upon the revealed law of God. And in that, he is being struck for not his own violations. He's being struck for the violations of God's standards by the people of God. And of course, you know, that is their personal records of sin, so to speak. Now, as the rock is struck, what happens? Apparently, the rock is split and in that split, there is a gushing of water that comes forward. It's not a dribble of water. There's a gushing of water that produces what we can only rightly describe, even though all of the details aren't here in the text, we understand that what's coming forth from this rock is what we would call a river. Why? Because it has to be a sufficient amount of water to satisfy the thirst of the entire camp of Israel. And by best estimations of those that have studied the actual Exodus event, there's a minimum of between three and five million people involved in the Exodus, including, of course, men, women, and children. So how do you produce enough water to satisfy the thirst of five million people in a desert environment where they're sweating profusely and needing lots and lots of water to drink. The only way that can be done is by some, especially in a location like Rephidim where there was no natural water source, the only way that can be done is through a miraculous provision of water. And so what's happening here is the imagery of the water coming forth is what Jesus later references in the New Testament is water of life, a river of water of life that's coming forth from him in order to provide eternal life for the people of God, not just natural, practical, temporary life, but the imagery is connecting to the New Testament concept again of eternal life. So both the manna provision and the water provision are both images symbolically of God's provision of eternal life through his son. And the exclusive element is connected here as well, just like it was with the manna. What's exclusive? What, what portrays exclusivity here? It's only one specific rock that's going to make this special provision. It's only one rock that must be struck and only one rock will bring forth a sufficient amount of water. Moses could have taken that same staff, which was identified in other places as the staff of God. And he could have gone around the summit of Sinai and you know, Mount Horeb, and he could have struck every rock on that mountaintop and none of them would have provided the water that this one rock provided as it was struck. Now, let's turn from here to John chapter four in the New Testament. 
because again, we want to connect all of these, if we can, to New Testament passages. And this is from a familiar story. The woman at the well that Jesus met in the early days of his ministry. And I won't read the whole story. I think you know the story well. I'll just read starting in verse 10. This is the Samaritan woman. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's not really getting it at this point. She's not really understanding. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, the well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so uh, she responds at that point, says, oh, give me some of that. That, you know, that sounds amazing. I'd like to drink from that water. So the idea being that Jesus is linking himself to a, a source of life-giving, enduring living water, which is distinguished from natural and practical water, water that one single drink of that water will, will satisfy the spiritual thirst of the person that drinks from it forever and ever from that point forward. So it's an imagery of what we call salvation. Now, let's go back again. We're not quite done with this one yet. Let's go back again to now the book of Numbers. And we're going to fast forward. This is Numbers 20, chapter 20. We're going to fast forward to much later in the wilderness journey. Uh, this is not at the very beginning when they were first at, at Horeb. And we're going to pick up the story now in verse 7 of Numbers 20. Um, I'll read verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. The glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation. I don't have time to go into the whole backstory of the context here, but what's just happened prior to this is that uh, there has been a um, there's been a challenge to the authority of the Lord as revealed through Moses and through Aaron. And uh, Moses is instructed by the Lord, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him, then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out of the rock. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. 
And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them he showed himself holy. All right, so what's happened here, and this is, a, this is worth a whole message all by itself, but I'm gonna just really short form it and connect it to the previous event in Exodus 17. At the beginning of the journey, the people were thirsty. They grumbled and complained, which was sinful, but the Lord knew they had a legitimate real need for water. And so the Lord was merciful and gracious. And he had Moses go to a specific rock at Mount Horeb, strike the rock while the Lord was spiritually standing on the rock. And in that imagery of the striking of Christ, he opens the rock and brings forth sufficient water to satisfy the needs of the people. Fast forward to later in the journey, they're back in the same location. And now the people again are grumbling about not having enough water to drink. And the Lord instructs Moses, now I want you to go back to the rock. And this time, rather than striking it, what I want you to do is speak to the rock. And I will bring forth water as you speak to the rock that's sufficient to satisfy the needs of the people. But Moses, in his frustration, his leadership frustration with the people in their continuing grumbling, complaining, and rebelling against the Lord and against his authority, Moses, in the moment, loses his temper. And instead of speaking to the rock the, Lord, the way the Lord instructed, what does Moses do? He strikes the rock like he did before, but now he strikes it a second time so what you're seeing here is kind of an image of frustration and anger as Moses hits the rock twice. The Lord still knows that the people actually need water. So the Lord does bring water out of the rock in spite of Moses' disobedience. But then he immediately says to Moses, because of you striking the rock, rather than speaking to it like I, like I instructed you, you will, essentially what he tells him is, you will die in the wilderness journey you will never enter the promised land. I will take the people on into the promised land, but I'm not taking you. So it's a judgment upon Moses. What is so severe in the actions of Moses? Because I will just tell you as a pastor, I've had in 35 years of, of pastoring the church, I've had moments of frustration with the church. So, you know, does that mean I'm disqualified from living with the Lord forever and ever? The answer is no, but what Moses did was at that level, that level of, and I'm not saying that Moses lost his salvation here. I don't believe that he did. But what he did do was he lost the privilege of entry into the promised land. What happens here is that God has already established a symbolism connected to the rock. The symbolism is the rock had to be struck while the Lord was standing on it, so that water, the water of eternal life came forward. That striking of the rock was an image, a symbol of judgment, and it was a symbol of the cross. Jesus needing to die on the cross in order for eternal life to come forth for the people. When Moses goes back to the rock and stri strikes it twice, what is he now portraying in regarding to the symbolism? He's portraying that Christ needed to die again in order to bring forth a new blessing for the people. That completely ruins the imagery of the symbolism that God is setting up through this event. So that's why the Lord said to Moses, 
This time do not strike the rock. This time just speak to the rock, which tells us that once Christ has been sacrificed for us, the only thing we need to do in our relationship with the Lord from that point forward, once we believe that God has judged Christ for our sake, he has taken the penalty of sin once and for all, is we merely need to speak to the Lord from that point forward. We don't need to try to strike him again like Moses did in order to bring forth a new blessing. And since Moses ruined that imagery, the Lord um, established a, you know, a, uh, a disciplinary judgment for him in that circumstance. All right, one last passage on this. This one I just recently connected uh, as part of this overall study, but uh, I want to reconnect it here to make sure you don't miss the connection. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is what Paul has to say about the water from the rock event. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In this section I'm about to read, Paul is not only talking about the water from the rock. He's talking about <clears throat> layers of symbolism in the wilderness journey, but he does, he does highlight the rock event. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 10, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, and here he's referencing the wilderness, the exodus generation of people, our fathers were all under the cloud, that's the pillar of cloud that led them, and all were, and all passed through the sea, that's the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. What spiritual food is he most likely referencing? The manna. And all drank the same spiritual drink. What drink is he referencing? He's referencing the water from the rock. Because he immediately says, for they drank from, and this is what's interesting here, in his way of describing it, basically through apostolically inspired perspective, he is looking back at the event that we read in Exodus 17, and he's interpreting it through new covenant fullness perspective. He says in verse four, for they drank from the spiritual rock, the spiritual rock, which would indicate what about it? It's not just an ordinary natural physical rock. There's something unique and something exclusive about the rock that was struck that brought forth living water for the people. And then he adds an additional interesting element. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Now, we know from the story that Christ stood on the rock. But here Paul identifies the rock with Christ, and he does so not by He's not trying to indicate that Jesus incarnated as the rock. He wants the people to understand that when the rock was struck, it was Christ that was being struck. When the rock brought forth living water, it was Christ that was bringing forth living water. But in this detail, he says that rock followed them. What does that mean? The rock followed them. Does it mean like in the cartoons, like as they moved camp, that the rock suddenly sprouted legs and was walking behind them throughout the wilderness? Probably not. But how often did they need to drink during their wilderness journey, do you think? 
every single day. When you're in the desert, again, the one thing you need more than anything else, you need water. You need it on a daily basis. Wherever they went, the implication is, and we, we're not guessing on this, Paul's just made this declaration under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the rock that brought forth this water for them to drink, that sustained them throughout their journey in the wilderness, which lasted how long? 40 years. That rock happened to be in every location that they journeyed throughout that 40-year journey. So the rock started in Horeb, but they didn't stay at Horeb for 40 years. They left Horeb and they, they made a, like a, a circular journey throughout the wilderness, coming eventually back to Horeb. But in all of the stages of their journey, they happened to camp in spots where there it is, the same rock is waiting for them in the new locations where they camped. All of that indicating, of course, the personal presence of the Lord to meet the fullness of the needs of his people wherever they happened to journey. All right. Um, I think we'll stop with two tonight and then I'll save um, this one that we're not going to cover tonight, Aaron's staff, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, lump that with the three that I have uh, prepared for our final study and I'll just go a little quicker and we'll see if we can get four done next week and double my output for tonight. These two uh, that we spent a lot of extra time on, because there are key New Testament passages and layers of these events, it required a little bit of extra time and a little bit of explanation. But Lord willing, uh, next time we'll try to cover the remaining four that we have for Christ revealed in the Old Testament things. All right, God bless you tonight.